Today's scripture reading is Psalm 56, which I encourage you to follow along with either on the screen or in your own personal Bible, or we have an insert in the bulletin as well. Psalm 56, a prayer of David. This is when the Philistines had seized him in Gath, it says. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, and the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So there's a discrepancy this morning, which I think is okay. And the discrepancy is this. If you look on the screen at the sermon title, it'll say, I'm afraid. If you look in the bulletin in the sermon title, it'll say, when trust trembles. And that's a classic example of a pastor being caught between two sermon titles during the week. And so don't let that bother you because I think both of them can communicate what I'm trying to get at. Um, But I kind of want to point you to the one on the screen because that's ultimately where I landed, which the sermon title this morning is just simply, I'm afraid. Because that's what David is saying in Psalm 56, what I just read. I'm afraid, God. And I've mentioned this as we've started this Psalms series for the summertime, that each week we're going to be kind of getting into different human emotions that we all feel. And this week, the the emotion is fear, which is appropriate for a week like this. I'm afraid, God. What are you afraid of? So I just said we all have the human emotion of fear that goes through us in life. So... What are you afraid of today? Listen to this. I told someone this morning there was a, there was an example coming this morning that was crazy. So just listen to this. Off the coast of the Solomon Islands, about 950 miles northeast of Australia, exists Kavachi Volcano, one of the most active underwater volcanoes in the Pacific. Its seafloor base is about 3,960 feet deep, and its summit is about 65 feet below sea level. However, what makes this volcano unique are the creatures that call it home. Get ready for this. Kavachi Volcano has also been dubbed Shark Kano. 
because in 2015, when the volcano was in a lull period of activity, an expedition to the area found there also were two kinds of sharks living near the crater. This came after a 2008 study found that the volcano was constantly spewing volcanic particles and fragments into the water, yada, 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 yada. Um, and then it finishes the article by saying other fish were also found living around the volcano. Now, I re in respect to those fish, I'm just going to put those last fish aside for a moment. I'm not particularly concerned about the other fish living near the volcano. I'm kind of traumatized by the fact that there's sharks living in an underwater volcano. Like when I asked the question a minute ago, what makes you afraid? I think if you had to put like a nightmare scenario in my mind, it would be around a volcano that also had sharks that somehow had adapted to live in an underwater volcano scenario. That sounds like something straight out of a horror movie to me, and that's actually real life. So just remind me never to get in a shipwreck off the coast of the Solomon Islands, so I find myself in this devastating scenario. So that's a silly example of fear, but there's obviously more tangible, real, uh, serious examples of fear. And like I've mentioned several times in the service this morning, can you imagine the fear if you were living in Uvalde, Texas this week? Can you imagine? I mean, just atrocious. And so get your heart to that place for the next few minutes as we dive into Psalm 56 to see how David deals with his fear. Because the question for us is, what do we do when we're afraid? If you had to fill in the blank, when I am afraid, I blank, what would you fill in that blank with? A couple of times in this psalm, David answers the question for us, which we will get into. But a couple of places in this psalm, it also mentions this phrase, trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord which for Americans, it rings true for us because you can literally open up your wallet and pull out a coin or a dollar bill and it'll tell you that, in God I trust. So this is something that as a nation we have clung to. And there's two places in this Psalm, verse three and in verse 11, where it says basically the same thing, just in reverse order. Verse three, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Verse 11, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. So somehow David is putting together fear and trust and saying, when I'm afraid, I will trust in the Lord. The context of Psalm 56 is interesting. So I mentioned at the beginning of the scripture reading that it says in my Bible, at least it says, this is a Psalm of David when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. And so you may not Remember that story? I didn't particularly remember it, so I had to go find it myself. And it's in 1 Samuel, really chapters 18 to 21 is the background of this psalm. Let me just kind of give you a, a general overview of it so we don't have to spend our time reading three chapters of scripture here. But basically in, psalm, or in, in 1 Samuel 18, King Saul, he's the first king of Israel, and this young guy David has kind of come up behind him. And David starts getting all the attention because he, he did a really good job in the war. He's a great warrior. And so they're singing this song to him. Saul has killed his, his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And so what happens to Saul? He gets upset because he's jealous. And so Saul gets super mad and he begins to try to kill him. Seems like an overreaction, but that's what he did. 
he starts to try to kill him. And Saul becomes David's enemy continually, is what it says in chapter 18, verse 29. The next two chapters are basically just this story of David running away from Saul. He's fleeing his enemy, his attacker. So again, you're starting to hear some of the themes of the psalm already, right? And then we come to 1 Samuel 21. And this is where the story climaxes and where David ends up pinning this psalm somewhere in hiding. David comes to the temple to a priest in a place called Nod. And he's hungry. He's looking for food. And the priest doesn't have any of the, the ordinary bread to give him. But he actually offers him the holy bread from the temple. The bread of the presence. And he offers it to David. And so they remove the bread from the presence of the Lord and gives it to David. Think about the, what's happening there. David is receiving what was once in the presence of the Lord. He is receiving that as his sustenance in this time of fear and fleeing. And then David says, do you have a weapon I can have? I, I don't know if I've caught this before, but... The priest says, well, yeah, there's, there's this leftover spear from Goliath. Remember when you killed him? It's wrapped up in a little cloth over here. You can take that one if you want. He says, sure. So he takes it. So again, the irony here is just amazing. He takes the sword of Goliath. And then David flees to Gath, which is where the psalm picks up. And when he gets to Gath in verse 11, the people begin to mock him. They basically start singing this song to him again. Remember that song? That they were singing, David has killed his thousands, Saul, is, or Saul has killed his thousands, David's killed tens of thousands. Except this time they're singing it as a mocking song. Oh, this is David. Remember, he's the one who killed tens of thousands. And they're mocking him by saying, what happened to you now? Now you're running away in fear. What a coward you are. And David takes this really hard. It says he took those words to heart and was afraid. Verse 12. So you know what he did? You know what King David, this man after God's own heart, this brave, mighty warrior, this king of Israel, do you know what he did to get out of this situation? He pretended to be insane and started scratching the walls, speaking weird things. He started to pretend that he was insane so that he could get away. And they, they believed it and let him go away. And that's when David writes this psalm. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. Today we're going to look at just a couple of things with regards to fear. I think there's two fears that are named in this psalm that David gets at. And then there's a couple of really core things we can hold on to when we're afraid or when we're struggling with fear ourselves. So the first fear that let's look, let's look at is in verses 1 to 4. And, um, and again, if you're just doing a, a quick reading of this psalm and just like a big summary of it, the fear is definitely David's scared of the people coming after him. Like literally people are chasing him, trying to kill him, Saul and his men. So that's clearly the fear. But I think there's a, a deeper fear that we can relate to maybe a little bit better. Because I'm imagining that most of us currently are not in this place because we feel like someone is chasing after you in your life. So we're probably not going to be able to relate to that this morning, though maybe we have had experiences of that in our past. But for the most part, our fears are probably a little bit on a deeper level. And I think David's fear is actually on a deeper level as well. So the first fear, I'm going to call it 
The fear of the unknown or the fear of uncertainty, the fear of just not knowing what's going to happen. I think that's one we all can relate to, whether it's someone literally chasing after us and you're hiding in a cave, not knowing if they're going to find you or not, or if it's just a daily fear of, I just don't know what the next day is going to bring. I mean, I think COVID has really brought up that fear to the mainstream, right? When COVID was first happening, none of us knew what was going on. And here we are a couple years later and we have, we have some more answers, but there's still a lot of uncertainty with it. And so this is a fear that we feel. And so David has these people coming after him. They're described in two ways. One is a man who tramples on me or pursue me all day long is what it says in verse one. And then he describes them as his enemies who pursue him again all day long. He repeats that twice. So again, I think that the key takeaway right from the beginning here is that David cannot escape this fear because it's literally people are chasing him, but maybe even more so the threat of being caught or what may happen next, the uncertainty that that is surrounding him all day long. I feel this verse one and two both repeat that. And so we're learning here that David has real personal enemies, Saul and his people. Not everybody likes him. And these are real people who are actively against him. They do not have his best interest in mind. The pursuit is constant. He's basically a fugitive on the run. It's relentless and it's unrelenting. And he's, he's in a moment of panic. You can just sense it as you're reading the story. And think about maybe in a time of your life where you've experienced a, a sense of unrelenting pressure and how that can get us to a place of panic. Of, I just don't know what is next. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get rid of this fear. And maybe even worse is these people, it says they are coming after him in pride. They attack me proudly, he says in verse two. They have no shame. They have nothing to lose, seemingly. They're just coming after him. Again, this is not the type of fear you and I usually feel. Like, again, I don't, I don't get the impression any of you are here in a state of an imminent danger. If you are, maybe this would be a good time to let me know so we can make sure you're secure. But I think most of us this morning are not being you know, uh, pursued by enemies who are seeking your life currently. But there are people in our world today who are living in that fear all around the world. And this is why we are a church that is acknowledging the world around us, why we pray for the world. Ukraine, there are people living in Ukraine right now who are probably feeling similar to what David's feeling. I just met a, a parent of uh, one of my children's classmates this week because they had field day on Friday. I was a volunteer. Um, and so the, one of these women was on my team. We were having kids throw tennis balls as far as they could throw them. That was our assignment. But I got into a conversation with this woman next to me and I learned that she's from Ukraine. And she's the only member of her family that lives here, but all of her family lives in the now Russia occupied Eastern part of Ukraine. And you could hear fear right away because she said, I don't really have a great way of getting in touch with them. I think they're okay, but it's kind of unstable. There are people that live in this situation now. 
But most of us are not dealing with this continually. Probably when we're reading this scripture, that's usually not our scenario. So the deeper fear for us is this fear of the unknown, the fear of our lack of of our own control in life. This can come from a lot of ways. I mentioned COVID earlier. That's a great example of being fearful of something that can come to you, an attacker that comes to trample you. It's maybe outside of our control. Natural disasters. There's a lot of things that are just blatantly out of our control. I have this distinct memory as a little kid. I was trying to think this week, what are some of the most fearful moments I've had in life, which is a it's kind of hard to remember because I feel like we kind of suppress those over time. Like we kind of choose to forget maybe some of the more fearful times we've had because they're not comfortable to think about. But one of the ones that I, I was able to just come to mind was we were going to vacation, going on vacation when I was a little kid. And we were in my, my family's van driving through southern Georgia in the summertime. And we were getting kind of close to nighttime and we stopped at a Waffle House. This is not the scary part. Waffle House is great. Some people, my wife is a little scared of Waffle House. I love Waffle House. It's a different story. Uh, we pull into this Waffle House and there's kind of like these dark clouds that are starting to emerge in the sky. And I didn't care. I was a little kid. I wasn't, I wasn't concerned about it until the people in the booth next to us started saying, did you hear there's a tornado warning in our county right now? They're saying that we may get a tornado. We should probably take shelter. I don't know. What do you think we should do? And so here's my little kid ears perk up. And now I'm in a state of panic. There's a tornado here. What are we going to do? We got to drive to Disney World. How are we going to get there? There's all these big clouds in the sky. We're going to be exposed. And so we, my parents are like, no, no, we're going to be fine. So we get into my van and I'm sitting in the back and it's getting night towards nighttime. And usually I just would go to sleep until we arrive at our destination but I wasn't sleeping. I was looking at those clouds saying, is that a funnel cloud? That looks kind of suspicious. Ooh, there's a bolt of lightning over there. I'm panicking out of fear of what might be coming, the unknown of what could happen. I think we we get to places in our life from silly examples like that to more serious ones like David's dealing through all throughout life because of the unknown. And we come to this conclusion that we just can't control everything in our life. There's certain good we can make. There's certain progress we can attain when it comes to overcoming fear. But there's a lot of things that we are just too weak to care for ourselves. And if you read the scriptures in their entirety, um, you begin to see that a lot of the boldest, bravest, capable leaders in the scriptures are overcome by fear of uncertainty throughout their life. Moses, in Numbers 11 gets to the place where he says, Lord, I can't deal with these people anymore. If this is going to be the way it is, just kill me now. That's what he says. And the Lord responds to him so graciously and brings others around him to help bear the burden. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 gets to the place where he says, Lord, if this is the way it's going to be, I can't deal with this anymore. If this is going to be the way it is, just kill me. And then he sends ravens to give him food. Jonah gets to the place where he says, if this is the way it's going to be, Lord, I can't deal with it. Just kill me. And he sits under this little pathetic tree. And God gives him shelter from the the tree. Jeremiah, all the prophets, Paul, if you read 2 Corinthians, basically the whole book of 2 Corinthians is Paul 
expressing his weakness and his fear and his uncertainty, the impossibility of the task. And then God graciously says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. David gets to the place where he says in verses three and four, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What I want to point out here quickly is that word flesh is not a word to describe actual humans. This is about like this inner struggle I think he's feeling. What can flesh do to me? What can, what can my body do to me? What, what can my feelings overtake me with? Like Actually, it can't overtake me. God, you are... I trust in you. These are all good things that have been given and I'm, I'm gonna be able to overcome this. The reason I make that distinction is because later when it's repeated, he uses the word, what can man do to me? And that's where he actually specifically talks about the fear of other people. But here he's talking about just his own personal flesh. What can flesh do to me? That's the first big fear. The second big fear is verses five to eight. So the first fear is this fear of uncertainty or fear of the unknown. The second fear, again, if you're reading the story, you're probably just thinking he's just scared of the people that are coming after him, which again is true. But I think there's something deeper here as well. And I would call it the fear of abandonment. The fear of being left all on his own, that no one is with him, no one is for him. I've got a bunch of people chasing me that are all against me and they're, they seem to be pretty convinced that I'm the bad guy. Where's, where's the people on my side? Have I been abandoned? And you, you see this throughout the Psalms. You know, Psalm 42, where are you, God? Here is the, he's looking at the fear of the arrival of others who want to do physical harm to him. Again, he's talking about all day long in verse 5, they injure my cause. So again, he's still feeling the same themes of being relentlessly pursued. And he mentions here a couple of things. He says, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. They have waited for my life. Notice that most of that is not like a, an aggressive, like, they're going to kill me. It's just more like this threat of them getting to him. The, like the emotional fear I think here is building up. And David, and you can see kind of, again, feel the panic in his voice, kind of like Moses and Jeremiah and, all, and Elijah and the prophets. He gets to this place of panic in verse 7 and 8, where he basically says, are they going to escape with this, God? Are they going to get away with this? For their crime, will they escape? Just cast them down, God. Like, please, just do something. That's his, that's his panic prayer, just like Moses had when he said, I can't deal with this, just take me. This is David's moment like that. And so what we learn here from David is that he is affected mentally just as much as he was physically. So while he's fearful of his life being taken, rightfully so, he's also really, this is getting to him mentally as well, psychologically emotionally, spiritually, even, I would say. And this is in part why he, in this moment, pretends to go crazy, right? Why he pretends that he's gone insane when these people come after him in Gath. Because in part, he's probably partly thinking, maybe I have gone crazy. 
So it probably didn't take a whole lot of acting for him to convince those folks that this is how he was feeling, because I think he's feeling the emotional, psychological burden of this. And let's just take a pause here for a moment to acknowledge how many of us in this world, in this room, are dealing with mental struggles today because of the trauma of these last several years. And it's just now coming to light. Anxiety and depression and mental illness is way more mainstream now than it probably has ever been before. And here's David going through this type of deep anxiety. The irony here is that David feels so alone while being surrounded by people. But the people that are surrounding him are his enemies, are his attackers. What he's longing for is his help, for someone to be around him to help him not feel alone, to not feel abandoned, to not feel like he's been forgotten or neglected or seen or cared for or encouraged. That's what he is longing for. And that's what brings us to the more encouraging part of this, which is the things that David remembers in the times of fear. Three things here. Verse one, how he starts the Psalm. Oh God, be gracious to me. David somehow in the midst of all this is able to pray a prayer to a God that he sees as gracious, even in the midst of being so unfairly treated. This is a prayer from David, that God is present in his fear that God, even amidst all this turmoil, is still a God of grace. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's what Paul says centuries later. And that's basically what David is confessing here right from the beginning. In our feeling of not knowing, God does know David. He knows what he's feeling. And he is gracious and compassionate in him, with him, in this. I will walk you through this, he says. Come to me. Second thing that David knows is in verse 8, which is one of the more beautiful parts of this whole psalm. In the moment where David is feeling abandoned, feeling the most alone, feeling like he's uncared for, he's able to put this beautiful verse forward in verse 8. You have kept count of all my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What a beautiful psalm that is penned there. He says, God cares for me. God sees all my pain. Doesn't just see it, but remembers it. Doesn't just remember it, but keeps count of it. Doesn't just keep count of it, but actually can have it before him at all times. Almost like it's in a little bottle. He can see all the pain, all the fear that is there. He frames it first as a trust statement. You have done this. And then nextly, he frames it as a question. Are they not in your book? Almost almost like he's kind of feeling the uncertainty at the time, but he hopes for it. Like, haven't you you kept all my pain in your bottle? And the answer is yes. We are not abandoned. We are not forgotten or left to figure it out on our own. God cares deeply for us in each of our troubles. And then lastly... In verse 9, this is the third thing he remembers. 
right after he makes that comment about being cared for, he says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call and I pray out. And then he has this beautiful line. This I know, this I know that God is for me. Friends, whatever you are dealing with in your life today or in the future, God is not against you. He is for you. Romans chapter 8 is the just place we have to go to for a second here. Let me just read some, some encouraging words for you in the middle of this. Romans chapter 8, let me just kind of jump around a bit here. In verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us if God is for us? And it goes down to verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ our Lord. You are never alone. Never alone, especially in times of fear. Fear is actually the pathway to presence, to the immense, unmistakable presence of our God. He is not against us. He is not the enemy. He is not out to make us miserable or to pay you back. God is on our side. He pursues us in love. He leaves the 99 safe sheep and goes after the one who has wandered away, the one who is in danger, the one sheep who has lost, lost its path, is fearful, about to walk off a cliff because that's what sheep do if they're, not, if they're not shepherded well. God goes after that one and comforts us in our affliction. And David states that he knows that. This one thing I know, God is for us. Who can be against us? All that is how I would summarize what it means to trust in the Lord. David says, I will put my trust in you. What can flesh do to me? I shall not be afraid. We could have spent this whole time unpacking some kind of formula or equation for what trust in the Lord looks like. And that would have been a good sermon too, I guess. But that's what trust is, is acknowledging in these moments of fear that God is for us, that he cares for us, that he is gracious. And then as the psalm ends, turning it back in thanksgiving to God. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render my thank offerings to you because you have delivered my soul from death. Again, David has not been rescued yet. His body has not been saved. His body has not been delivered. He's not in a safe place yet. He's in danger, but he's able to acknowledge here, my soul has been delivered from death to life. And therefore I can walk with God even while I'm trapped in a little tiny corner of a cave, I'm walking with God in soul. Let me just finish with a, a closing story just to kind of tangibly give you something to bring home with. Um, there's a story of a, of a guy that escaped from prison in 2005. And on his way out of prison, he, um, he shot a few folks, killed four people. And as he was fleeing, he came upon this woman and he put a gun to her head and said, take me to your apartment and keep me inside away from the danger. 
So he takes this woman hostage. Um, her name is Ashley Smith. The guy that's escaping from prison, his name is Brian Nichols. And so Nichols um, takes Ashley Smith and they go back to her apartment and he's holding her hostage inside. Again, can you imagine the fear she's going through at that moment? Um, and yet, seven hours after this, Nichols just walks outside and surrenders to the shock of everybody that's watching this. And so, of course, they ask, what happened? Why are you surrendering? And then they ask Ashley Smith the same thing. What happened in there that enabled this to end so peacefully? She said, well, we just had a friendly breakfast of pancakes and eggs. Um, but what led to that was uh, this woman asked, asked her hostage, asked, asked the person who had, had taken, her, uh, taken her hostage if she could read. And he said, well, what do you wanna read? And so she went and got her Bible and a book called The Purpose Driven Life off her shelf. So she takes these two books and she says, well, this is what I read every day. Can I read today's chapter? And he said, sure. And so the chapter for that day from the purpose driven life was called what, uh, using what God gave you. And let me just read here. It says, after starting with a Bible verse, uh, Rick Warren says in the chapter, God deserves your best. He shaped you for a purpose and he expects you to make the most of what you've been given. He doesn't want you to worry or to covet abilities you don't have. And the, the article here says that for some reason, Nichols, the, the escapee from prison, was infatuated by that. And he asked Smith to read it over and over again. And soon the dynamic of this hostage captor situation was broken and they started to talk like friends and they shared breakfast and they shared stories of their families and questions they had about God. And what really energized their conversation was this theme of purpose. Nichols even asked Smith, quote, what do you think my purpose is? And she responded boldly, maybe it's to care for and to minister to people in the prison that you're at. Maybe that's what God wants you to do. And maybe he brought you here to my apartment so that you could know that. The thought of purpose was so powerful for him that when the last pancake was gone, Nichols surrendered, surrendered not only to the police, but even more so surrendered to his purpose. And he willingly went back into prison. You see, the, the presence of God is with us in times of fear. It's a lot better than sharks in an underwater volcano. But think about the presence of the fourth figure that was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the presence of God with them in fear, the presence of the living God with you and me in our times of greatest fear. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And he says to them later, I came that you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus said, I'm with you in the fire and in the fear. You are never alone. Fear is the ultimate invitation to the presence of the living God. Let me close us in prayer. Father, help that to sink into us in our life. It's a lot to handle in a week like this. 
but may we see in David glimmers of what we can find in ourselves, which is a deep and residing trust in you that even when we're afraid, we will put our trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. So we pray that these words will not return empty, but will accomplish their purpose for each of our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.